Welcome to the Sisters Community Church Podcast. In this episode, Pastor Ryan Moffat takes us through all of 2 John, where he talks about being full of grace and truth. Let's listen. I want to start with a question this morning. And I really want you to think about this question. I really want you to ponder this question. And I want this question to frame up how we open up God's word this morning. And the question is this, true or false, community has the power to change the world. True or false, community has the power to change the world. Now, think back with me through your own journey with Jesus. Think back with me maybe through your own church history or, or maybe how you became a Christian or, or maybe you're not a Christian but you're here and you're interested. But think back through your journey, your spiritual journey, and think through who are the people that brought you along? Who were the ones when you were a squirrely high schooler like me who said, you can call me at any time, no matter what situation you're in? Who were the ones that said, I'm going to believe in you when your life doesn't demonstrate a life worth believing in? Who were the ones who loved you enough to at times encourage you and also at times maybe correct or even rebuke you? Who confronted you? Who prayed for you? Who encouraged you? Who was financially generous to you? And as I thought through these questions, I just started remembering names. Oh, that family, they paid for me to go on a missions trip. Oh, that pastor, my old pastor, Stu Weber, when I got into seminary, I wasn't even at Good Shepherd anymore. But he found out I was going to school and he said, send me every bill for every book you ever buy. And if he only knew, I didn't really read them. I just read the Cliff's notes. Sorry, Stu. <laughs> this idea of people helping shape our discipleship journey, it's so integrated into the New Testament and it's so integrated into John's desire for the church that when we just decide that we're gonna live autonomous, individualistic Christian lives, no wonder the Christian that's alone ends up often in wreckage and in pain. God has always wanted to build a community, but humanity has always wanted to build a counter community. If you can follow that thread actually all the way through from the beginning. It's interesting, in Genesis chapter 11, you guys know this, it's the story of the Tower of Babel. And in that story, man says, now that we are one, nothing will be impossible. The power of community. When I think about this question, community has the power to change the world, I think of a story of a very unlikely convert. And I want to tell you about this woman who's really marked me. Her name's Rosaria Butterfield. I don't know if you've heard that name before, but Rosaria Butterfield was a very, very highly educated, powerful woman. She was teaching actually the high-end philosophy classes at the University of Syracuse. She was very much a progressive secular humanist. And she was actually writing articles in the late 90s. 
And she was dismantling what she thought were the three dirty trinity of the Bible, Republicans, and the alt-right kind of moralistic framework. And so she was writing and blasting people. And and there was a, a good amount of Christians that were responding to her blasting by blasting back. But at one point, as she was interacting, and, and she was a, a, a very committed lesbian in her relationship with another woman, and as she was writing these articles, she decided, if I can kill this little stupid ministry called Promise Keepers and destroy this witness of all these guys, I can really win. And so she, her kind of penultimate work was to dismantle promise keepers. And she began writing, and her writings went all over the place, and the New York Times and everywhere else, and she was growing, she was building her brand. But there was this guy named Ken Ham, I believe. Ken was a simple, quiet, local church pastor, not a mega church guy, had a little church in New York, And Ken wrote her and said, hey, I've been following your things. I have some questions. I really like your thinking. I really, you're very smart. You're very well put together. Here's some questions that I've just thinking about based on your claims of absolute truth while you're critiquing my claim of absolute truth through scripture. Can we have a conversation? And Rosaria said that question, that question of, of just, beginning to ask some deeper critical questions about her worldview began a dismantling. Ken and his wife not only had time to write letters, they actually ended up hosting Rosaria for many, many nights, many dinners together. They became friends. Wow, crazy. And what happened is Rosaria, through a series of divine appointments, and the generosity of just a simple man and his wife, she became a Christian. She came to Christ, and she wrote a book, amazing book, called An Unlikely Convert. Very powerful book. But recently she wrote another book, and the book she wrote is called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. It's a book about radical hospitality. And I want you to listen to this quote from Rosaria as we go into this passage this morning. She says this, our post-Christian neighbors need to hear and see and taste and feel authentic Christianity. Hospitality spreading from every Christian home that includes neighbors and prayer and food and friendship, childcare, dog walking, and all the daily matters upon which friendships are built. Rosaria's journey came through an unlikely little person in a little place, in a little church, who just said, I'm gonna engage with you where you're at. And I bring that up because as we go into this little letter of 2 John, we're gonna learn three things from this letter. Number one, we're going to learn the authentic nature of spiritual leadership. We're gonna learn something through John's instruction to this church. Number two, we're actually gonna learn the real clear and present threats to our perseverance in the gospel. But lastly, number three, we're going to learn the surprising strategy 
embedded in this little tiny letter, this little strategy to persevere in our faith until the end of the age. So would you stand with me and let's read 2 John out loud together. And when you leave today, people can say, what'd you do at church? You can say, we read a whole book of the New Testament out loud at church. <laughs> Second John, the elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask with you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teachings of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works." Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this exuberant congregation. I didn't even ask them to read and they did. So I praise you, God, that they wanna speak the word. We wanna speak the word out loud we wanna speak the word out loud and we wanna speak it over this church. We wanna speak this new commandment, love one another, God. We wanna speak that so it becomes real. Make us a culture that's strong in doctrine, but make us not just strong to know things, make us strong in doctrine so we're strong in love. May we be different because of grace. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Go ahead and be seated. You guys are a good, class today. I didn't even ask you to read and you're eager to read scripture out loud. This is like, have you been reading my journal? This is like, you know, it's like my dream. Okay. Number one, we're going to look at the authentic nature of true spiritual leadership. Look how John starts his letter. He says to the elect lady and to her children, and he says this about this congregation, whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also who know the truth. And then you get to verse four and, and John says, I find, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. And you're gonna see over and over again in this little letter, you're gonna see John shove these two paradoxes together. He's gonna shove the words love 
and truth right next to each other. And John says that his greatest desire, the thing that he wants most for these people is that they would what? Walk in the truth. You're gonna see uh, in verse four, you're gonna walk in the truth. You're gonna see in verse two that the truth abides in us. And here's the point I think John's making here. We tend to think that truth is primarily something that we just kind of download into our brain, lock away, and it's like, I believe the right things. That is not how the New Testament talks primarily about truth. He says, truth is something you do what? You walk in it. And John wants to see this little church transformed, not just knowing the right things, but actually walking in the right things. And so the New Testament would summarize it this way, to know and not do is to not know. And what he's doing is he's making sure that we don't become a church, a congregation, and a people that becomes pharisaical. To know the right thing and to not do it is not knowledge in the scripture. And so John comes and he, he sees this congregation. We just went through 1 John and we, we, we saw some progression and movement and this is the follow-up letter. And he's saying, some of you are staying, some of you are persevering. I was just with uh, Kent Bowles. How many of you guys know Kent? Kent's been a youth pastor in this town, worked with middle schoolers. They just moved, but he came back this week. It was just great. He knocked on my door Tuesday night, unannounced, very Kentish. Like, it's like 8.30, who are you? Get in here, let's talk, you know? And Kent said this. He goes, the coolest thing, Ryan, is that a lot of these middle schoolers that I worked with, they're adults now, and now they're working with middle schoolers. Kent's greatest joy isn't that he one time in 1993 got to do a retreat. His greatest joy is that that retreat produced people who are now doing retreats. It's a discipleship. It's a multiplication. And for John, he's like, I want to see multiplication. I want to see you walking in the truth. But truth without love, truth without grace, Truth without relationship is harsh. Love without truth, is, it's frail, it's fragile, it's sentimental. But the New Testament is very interested in love and grace and truth working together. Dallas Willard says this about the truth. He says, one of the hardest things in the world is to be right and not hurt people with it. Is our truth making us sweet relationally? How many parents out there, right, with our children, do we know what they should do? I have a pretty good idea. Like, I think I know better than my 10-year-old, maybe a few things. But it's not about knowing what to do. It's about actually helping her know what to do. Can you receive this right now? Can you receive this instruction? What does it look like for me to communicate in a way that she actually grows and learns and walks in the truth? 
And so we gotta be real careful, friends, that we don't become the kind of people that go around and bop everyone on the head as some sort of knowledge police. John says, I gave my life and you know my love. So you know, that's a good translation, Lucy. Thank you for sharing that. But John, friends, John actually had to fight through an obstacle. I want you to go back to 1 John. I want you to see something here. 1 John chapter 2. And these are the kinds of fun observations that are just fun to ponder. This one was fun to ponder for me this week. Here's, here's John in 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and following. When he says, children, it's the last hour as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might became, become plain that they, are, that they all are not of us. This group had people who really deserted the church. What really caught me this week as I'm studying Second John was that John had to work through deep relational pain and notice John's voice, notice his tone, notice his demeanor, He's not bitter. In fact, he's the opposite of bitter. Verse four, I rejoiced greatly. What can happen to us in life? How many, how many of us here have experienced maybe a little bit of relational disappointment in our life? Anybody, can I get an amen? Some of you are looking at your spouse. Don't do that, come to the marriage class. Come to the marriage class. Part of life is that we get relationally hurt. Part of life is that certain things that we had expectations for let us down. Do you think John was laboring in 1 John 2 with this church, wanting everyone to stay together? And the answer is absolutely yes. But some went out. Some went out. And you know what? John did not get bitter. John did not get fatalistic. Well, people are just going to screw you, so whatever. John didn't become indifferent. No, John says, my joy is deeply tied up into your joy. Paul says in Philippians, he says to the Philippian church, he says, you, 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 you are my joy and my crown. And so part of the nature of authentic spiritual leadership, we're just going to do it this way. Over here is unhealthy codependence where it's like the spiritual leader needs everybody to think they're great. Over here is radical independence. We're not connected at all, but the, the beautiful part of the New Testament and how we see this leadership framed up is what I call biblical interdependence. John's joy is that they are walking in truth. This was challenged this whole relational paradigm was challenged greatly 
over the last few years, wasn't it? I remember going to a pastor's conference in 2020 with a small group of guys, and every guy just told horror story after horror story of just the fallout from all of, I mean, it's just amazing what we divided over. And John's like, I want you to stay together. I want you to walk in the truth. Now, the last thing I want you to see is that John's leadership, it's deeply rooted in his rabbi. It's deeply rooted in Messiah. It's deeply rooted in Jesus, okay? So keep your finger in 2 John and go back to the Gospel of John, chapter one. And this is the introduction, like the most epic prologue ever is John chapter one, verses one to 18. And here's what he says of of this Jesus. He says, the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. Go back to the beginning of the story with Rosaria. The word became flesh and he incarnated. He, He came to Ken Ham, Pastor Ken with Rosario, he incarnated, he came to. So the word became flesh and he dwelt, he came to, and we have seen his glory, and here's his glory, as of the only son from the father, and here's his glory, full of grace and what? Truth without grace is harsh. Grace without truth is sentimental fragility. Grace and truth. And so that becomes the cadence by which John understands his leadership. Randy Alcorn wrote a little book called The The Grace and Truth Paradox. I wanna read a couple sentences from that. He says, the ancient historical Jesus came full of grace and truth. The modern mythical Jesus comes full of relativism and tolerance. Even in the church, truth is sometimes buried under subjectivism and cowardice while grace is lost in a sea of permissiveness and indifference. Without truth, we lack courage to speak and convictions to speak it. Without grace, we lack compassion to meet people's deepest needs. The vast majority of colleges were built with the vision and funding of Christians. Why? To teach truth. Most Americans' hospitals were built with the vision and funding of Christians. Why? To extend grace. We don't have the luxury of choosing either grace or truth, yet many believers habitually embrace one instead of the other. According to our temperament, according to our background, church or family, we must learn to say yes to both grace and truth and say no to whatever keeps us from them. Guardrails, good thing or bad thing, my kids will tell you, good thing, we love guardrails. This last year we were taking a houseboat uh, trip to Shasta and we were going with the Kirkpatricks and the Greens and we're driving down there and our GPS has taken us somewhere I've never seen before. And we ended up on these tiny little roads. And at one point um, I was wondering, Dave was towing a boat behind us and I was wondering, I don't know if he's gonna make that hairpin turn with the boat because the road kept getting narrower. And uh, anyway, turns out the boys were in back praying Psalm 23, though I walked through the valley, the shadow of death, you know. (laughs) It helped their scripture memorization, so praise God. Um, So number one, the nature of true spiritual leadership, it is grace and truth. 
And we gotta be the kind of people, we gotta have the kind of church, we gotta have the kind of community that practices both. Number two, there is a clear and present threat to our perseverance in the gospel. Verse six, sorry, verse seven, many deceivers, they've gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. And you'll see this again in 1 John chapter two again. It's the last hour, many antichrists have come. They went out from us. 1 John chapter four, don't believe every spirit, test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Many false prophets, they've gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the antichrist. So there is a real threat. And it has to do with what we believe about Jesus. Everyone wants an opinion about Jesus. Everyone wants to borrow the name of Jesus. The question is, which Jesus are we talking about? And so what's happened in this early church is, is they've wanted to actually minimize this idea that God would actually get dirty. They're fighting mythologies of the day that want to have an, a high and lifted up God only. But the gospel is not that God is only high and lifted up. He is also what? Imminent. He comes. And how does he come? As a baby. Where? Nazareth. Where? The motel? No, the end. He comes to the worst possible place, worst possible time. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And the, the, the scandal of the gospel is wanting to get undone in the first century. They're wanting to say, no, that, that version of God, that's, that's too messy. Well, if he's just the high and lifted up God, the, if he's just the transcendent God, then you know what we have? Got a lot of truth, no grace. But Jesus in the flesh, this move right here, this is, this is the grace of God. He came and he tabernacled, he dwelt, he came, he got dirty. And so this beautiful scandal of the gospel, it's wanting to get quieted. It's wanting to get hushed. And John say, no way. And so anybody who comes and announces another gospel, look at the consequences. My goodness. Verse eight, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but you may win a full reward. John wants this church. He's not, here's what John's not doing. John is not manipulating them or trying to control them. John is saying, I love you and I want you to have the best possible future. I want you to have a full reward. And friends, sometimes, sometimes our disobedience, I love, everyone wants to talk about, well, are they saved? Are they not saved? I'm not sure, but John says this, we can forfeit reward. Our disobedience can forfeit blessing. And so John says, I'm laboring so you wouldn't forfeit the abundant life. The second thing he says this, he says, everyone that goes on ahead does not abide in the teaching of Christ. They don't have God. That's a big consequence. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the father and the son. If anyone comes to you, and here's what he says, what we're gonna do with these, guys, these false teachers. Anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. We're not gonna be hospitable. 
with wolves. It's serious. And so here's what John is saying. He's saying this deception that wants to mischaracterize, misquote, misrepresent the real Jesus, what's at stake is our reward. He wants us to have it full. And he says, there's, there's a reality that, man, if you don't have this teaching of Jesus, you don't have God. And friends, when, I was just with someone this week, 88 years old, I get a call. Don't, she says, you know, we don't go to the church, but grandma's dying. Will you come visit? I go see grandma. I have not seen someone with bone cancer this late in their life. And I sit with grandma. And the only thing that matters in that moment to grandma is do I have God? Do I have him? Does he have me? We had no time for trivialities. We did not talk about the Blazers. Praise God, that would have been depressing. (laughs) Do I have them? And so I read this, I grabbed her little frail hand and I just read Psalm 23 with her. I said, he leads me beside still waters. And I said, do you like water? And she said, barely, she could barely say much. She said, I love Subtle Lake. So I started describing the view of Subtle Lake. He leads me to green pastures. What's your favorite place in the world? We talked about plains and different, and I would just describe and, and paint a picture in her mind. Got an email from granddaughter this last night. Ryan, ever since you left, I don't know if mom's come back from, from that coma, but she seems so peaceful. I believe God has her. There's nothing more tragic in life than not having God. Do you have God? Do you know that God has you? But the last thing I wanna show you in this deception is this. Look what time it is in chapter two, verse 18 of 1 John. He says, children, it's the last hour. It's the last, so what time are we at in the story of God? First advent, the coming of Jesus. Second advent, Revelation 20 and 21. Where are we at? John calls this inter, uh, this inner period. He says this period from this time to this time. This is the last hour. This is it. And I think what he's doing is he's, he's wanting to shock the people into like, let's live urgently. Do you guys know when it's like, this is the last shot? Have you guys ever seen anyone who knows, like, I've got X amount of days to live? I've seen amazing documentaries of people that said, I had 100 days to live. Guess what you start doing? Start living. It's like, well, we're going to take that trip. I'm going to go on that roller coaster because if it doesn't work, well, 100 days, so whatever. I'm going to finally learn how to surf. I mean, people, so he's wanting to shock this people. Sometimes spiritual sleepers, we think this is just kind of the infinite vacation. He's like, no, this is the last hour. So what time are we at in the, in the story? He says, this is the last hour. And in this little passage, what John's going to give us is he's going to give us a surprising strategy for the church, for the people of God, so that we persevere until the end of the age. And that's what I want for Ryan, that's what I want for my family. 
It's what I want for our church. I want us to persevere to the end. Look at 2 John verse 2. He says this, the truth abides in us and it'll be with us forever. Don't you want a hope that will be with you forever? Don't you want something that you're like, this has rooted me in something that's eternal? John sees the moment he's in and he sees the moment we're in as the last hour. So the question is, how is God going to persevere? What's his method in the world? How does he keep us until the end of the age? Verse five. And now I ask you, dear lady, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one that we have heard from the beginning, that we love one another. John says, okay, the secret sauce, here it is. How do you get preserved? Boom, you love one another. Well, no, what's the big trick? How, how do we do this? We love one another. Our relationships have a preserving power to them. Can community change the world? The answer biblically is absolutely yes. The way we relate to one another, the way we go to our small groups this week, the way we have coffee together, the way we go to our women's Bible study together, the way our youth gather, the way our kids get together, all of it has a preserving effect. Hebrews chapter three, verse 13, the author of Hebrews says, let us encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today. Huh, when's it called today? What's it called today? Today. Why? So that none of you would be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. There's something about the community that God instills and entrusts something to us. And he says, what you've been given is so powerful that it can help people not become hardened by, by the deceitfulness of sin. We love one another. The way we connect, the way we gather, the way we do community, we're getting ready to officially start our life group ministry. You're going to hear more about that in the next few weeks. The way we get into each other's homes, the way we get into each other's lives, the way we leave here, the way we greet one another, it all matters. So the antidote to fading away, the antidote to leaving and going out from among us, the antidote to the, the hardness of heart that can gather like plaque on our hearts is community. It's encouragement. It's one anothering. Steve was just sharing with our staff this week when he was doing some business consulting years ago. He found this amazing re reality from one of the books, one of the resources, that companies were losing up to 500 Billion? Was it billion? Okay, I was listening. See, you thought I was sleeping. I was in. Um, $500 billion a year in these big corporations was being lost because of the discouragement of the culture. And so they found the single greatest way to actually improve, increase productivity and increase work culture was this little principle 
encouraging the heart. I want you to think about it for a second. Do you remember the last time someone caught you doing something good and looked in your eyes and told you, I see you doing that? I remember things people told me from, I'm 42. I remember things people told me when I was 14 on the basketball court. I remember things my youth pastor told me when I was 17. Encouraging the heart, catching one another, doing it right. Look at them in the eyes and say, I see something in you. Hey, I saw, Dennis, I see what you're doing. I, I've been with you out in the community. I see you visiting people. Missions team, I see you. I'm having lunch with you, can't wait. Janice, I see you. I see you fighting for your joy. McKibben, I see the way you're loving our men. I see you Friday mornings praying for the church. Mark, I, I see the way you love people. When we start that culture, guess what happens? Preservation, endurance, perseverance, joy, relational oneness, community, and that community begins to change the world. So I want to close by giving you this from Larry Crabb. He says this, our burden is to understand what community could be in a way that excites us with its potential to liberate, to strengthen and encourage just a few and then to touch the deepest, deadest and most terrifying parts of those people's souls with resurrection power. Wow, isn't that a vision? So that culture of grace and truth, friends, that's not original. John didn't come up with that. He wasn't that smart. John knew the gospel. And so the gospel is this. This is the grace and truth gospel from Hebrews chapter four. Here's what the scriptures tell us, verse 15. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted yet without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. We have a God who is not scared of us. He's not scared of the broken parts of us. So we ought be the kind of people that aren't scared of one another that we encourage the heart because we've been encouraged in our hearts by the love of God. That we would look and, and, and find people because we've been found by God most high. That we'd love people because we've been loved with an everlasting love. That we'd be gracious because he's graced us. That we'd be slow to anger because our God has been so slow and so slow to anger with me. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for the scriptures, the truth of your word, the power of the spirit. Thank you for the new covenant reality that through the death, burial, and resurrection of King Jesus, we have everything we need. God, I pray you'd make us a grace community. I pray you'd make us a truth community. And I pray that truth would be a beautiful thing, never weaponized, never to hurt, but only the truth that causes us to heal and grow. 
Father, thank you for this church family. Thank you for what you're doing. We are in awe. And we're amazed and we live our lives just totally dumbfounded that God most high came so near to us through Jesus. Lift high Jesus Christ. And God, please have your way during our time of communion this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this encourages you to dive deeper into your relationship with God through prayer, scripture, worship, and community. We hope you can join us on Sunday mornings at 9.30. For more information, go to sisterschurch.com. Be blessed, friends.